John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 29 Entry 206.LV2733 Certificate Number 48966 Change of Gauge This is going back How old is that show? Pretty Late, old. Pre-pandemic. Yeah, nine uh, 9.20. Autumn to, Oh no, that's not pre-pandemic. It's early pandemic. Mid-2020. It seemed like it was late pandemic at the time. <laughs> we were hoping it was Little late pandemic. Change of Gauge is actually back in the news. I noticed I, I this. assume you know yeah, why. I was sure I was sure into it. Uh, and this probably came up in the original episode, how Russian train gauge is not the same as Western European train gauge, and it would have been a logistical and a supply challenge for any actual land war in in central europe in the 20th century right, right? one of the main reasons that the folded gap was a gap only at, at the very beginning of the war during the soviet union they built they tore up all the the swindle sheets and left them sitting on the scales but they also tore up all the old or the the proper european gauge track Proper, wow. And replaced it's, it with... This anti-Russian propaganda is really okay <laughs> nowadays, huh? Replaced it with Warsaw Pact track, uh, except I think there is a line from, um, a line in Ukraine that goes to Poland that is the that is the smaller gauge. Yeah, a listener named Matt sent us an article from l- late last year talking about how this would be a huge challenge for any kind of um, Russian army logistics you know that um i think poland has one single line that's warsaw pact era that would match the russian 1.52 millimeter gauge and the baltics as well you know because it's, it's the former the former ssrs are the most concerned about this yeah right because the baltics are terrified that the russians are going to come in and they have the wrong train gauge to be safe that's exactly right you can just welcome russian trains, you know, whereas someplace like Poland is very insulated because they know that the whole Russian army would have to be resupplied by truck if they ever tried to get beyond railway termini. But in, I mean, the Ukrainians have been blowing up train tracks right and left so they can try to keep getting people out. Right. You know, what, over 2 million people at this point have left the Ukraine as we record this. Although, by yeah, by the time this show airs... Anything could be true. Yeah, we ap- we apologize for anything that's in poor taste either way because we are a couple weeks in the past. 
um, this being an addenda show, this will be out in two weeks or so. Oh, I see. Yeah, but but what probably hasn't changed is Ukrainian train gauges. Right. But the Russian strategy remains the same, which is to capture enough of these termini that they can start running their own supply trains between the border and Kharkiv and then Kharkiv and Kiev and so forth. Right. Because right now, one of their huge problems is they got to do everything by truck. And apparently it's a nightmare. I wonder if at the end of this war, when Ukraine is integrated into the European Union, whether they'll tear up all of that old track and put down some good old new European gauge track. Uh, 1,435 millimeters instead of that darn 1,522 millimeters. I like how 1.435 millimeters is obviously the correct patriotic Train gauge. Right. Boo, 1.520. Boo. Where do you want your goods and services to go? To Berlin or to <laughs> Moscow? You don't want goods and cheese going to Moscow. No. Entry 683.GN2304. Certificate number 17567. Kennewick Man. I believe this is this episode. You love a good pronunciation note. Kennewick Man, Kennewick Man. This is an old show, but Riva must be listening to the catalog because she recently wrote in to say that we are both pronouncing the same word wrong. This rarely happens on Omnibus. Is it Idaho? Usually you'll make fun of a word that I'm pronouncing wrong, or I'll make fun of a word you're pronouncing wrong. But this is a case where we both are saying the verb D-E-M-U-R. Demure. Well, I said it in the last episode we recorded. You did. It's going to come out in a few months. And you said it wrong. Well, how do you say it? Demure is the adjective. A young woman, a young person who is demure and, you know, shy or dainty. Yeah. To demur uh, actually means to... Uh, be demure. <laughs> or to to, uh, to, uh, to kind of acquiesce or... It's the, well, to be reluctant, I yeah, guess. Yeah, to be reluctant. Yeah, there you go. To like... Um, I demur in, in challenging you on Yeah, this. hesitate or, yeah. or object in some way. It's not demure. I've been saying it wrong my whole life. The verb is to demur. To demur. Doesn't that sound dumb? It sounds like... It, uh, dumb and demur. It sounds like they're at the... When the three wise men show up at yeah. the at the crash and then... I brought they, de Gaulle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I brought de Frankincense. What did you bring, Bill? <laughs> demur. Uh, so to anyone who has been saying demure... Incorrectly in the Whoa. future. We need to set the record straight. Please immediately adopt the correct pronunciation that Riva endorses. So thank you, Riva. I don't know if I will be able to to overwrite my wrong pronunciation because I have a list of, as long as my arm. But Make this demur. one a priority, John. Demur. Because I use that a lot. Entry 445.IS0526. Certificate number 43944. The fastest bicyclist. The current record holder for fastest land speed on a bicycle is a woman. Um, and we talked considerably about kind of some of the endurance advantages that women tend to have in these kinds of events. We heard from Oiva in Finland. I hope I'm saying that right. Hello, Oiva. Um, we, we butcher Finnish language stuff all the time. So. We're, we're sorry that your rail gauge is the same as the Soviet Union. Did you know Finland? Only non-SSR that has 1.520 rail gauge? God, it's funny. They hate the Russians so much, I would think. They that... admire their width of their rails. <laughs> yeah. I, my guess it was it was not their choice. This yeah, yeah is, sure. This is probably a legacy decision at this point. Uh, Oiva is interested in... Uh, 
bicycle drafting. He has a friend who um, drives behind trams and buses when they commute in Helsinki, hmm. but points out that it's dangerous if you're drafting behind a tram. Because um, it's on track. Yes. <laughs> and in this case, her friend did not notice that a, I think it's a she, did not notice that a section of the track had the ground dug up between it, which is fine if you're a Helsinki tram, but not if you're the bike driving behind it. Ouch. Fell full speed into a pit. Survived, but no longer drafts behind trams. But on the topic of women being good in endurance sports, Oiva brought to our attention the transcontinental race of 2019. Are you familiar with the European bicycle event called the transcontinental race? No. I was not either. It's an ultra distance. They don't go from Amsterdam to Istanbul by any chance, do they? <laughs> like the Orient Express? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a different, it's a different um, route every year. It started out as a London to Istanbul race. Oh, it's like the Tour crazy. de France. They screw around and they make it different things. Yeah, I mean, it's usually around 4,000 kilometers. But, it, you know, at various times, it's gone between Belgium and Greece, oh. uh, Belgium and Bulgaria. Once in 2019, they went the opposite way, Bulgaria to France for the first time. Oh, you're going uphill the whole way. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, being a, kind of an ultra-endurance race... Uh, you know, it started in 2013 with a small number of people. It's still kind of self-administered. Sure. Um, you can sleep whenever you want. Sure. And that time is not deducted from the race. The, the, the winner is chosen in the total amount of time it takes on the bike. to arrive. Yeah. And so you, routinely, the winner is somebody who is just sleeping three hours a night or whatever. Oh, you're saying it's not deducted. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. like the Iditarod. You have to just get there. Yeah. Whoa. Is, ah, the Iditarod's the same way, huh? Yeah, you don't you don't want to screw around, waste a lot of time on the Iditarod. So a woman has never finished in the top three in this race in the decade it's been run until 2019, the most recent race due to due to some COVID uh, cancellations. Right, right. In which the German bicyclist Fiona Kolbinger won the entire event okay um, 11 hours ahead of the uh of the runner up uh a british man what 11 hours yes. 11 hours uh you know this race takes you know between a week or a week and a week and a half to run right um and in kind of digging into this you know i'm surprised you know never having seen a woman uh place in this race only to have one win i think fiona kolbinger from what i've read um had not she was just a she was on her way to get the groceries and some guys rode past her and she was like not on my watch she's a, she's not a professional cyclist of any kind i mean not that that's a thing but she's just a surgical resident in dresden just a surgical resident as though that's easy to be who enjoyed biking yeah, and won the world's premier ultra endurance race. And I found <laughs> this will not surprise you. On some, uh, I was trying to find discussion of this, and I finally found some one of those libertarian, <laughs> awful libertarian legal blogs. <laughs> some Reddit where people are like, oh, yeah, "Women shouldn't be allowed to bicycle." It was really more of a Rosie Ruiz did she cheat oh, kind of a thing. Of course. I can't remember if this was on Ann Althaus or Eugene Volok or you know somebody awful. Yeah, you can count on the internet to. To be fun. Uh, and somebody in the, and so there's a lot of these people who know nothing about cycling who were like, oh, this is all um, 
self-reported times, you know, clearly she cheated. Oh, here's a nice one. What a drag. Uh, here's a nice one. The, the, the cyclists are... Um, The cyclists are not allowed to ask anybody the way or receive technical support from anybody else. They must find their own food and accommodation. Okay. So you're really on your own. Uh, and uh, the f- number one comment is, having a p- is going to be a huge advantage in a race like this. The little purse that is never really empty. That's lovely. What? Just assuming the, uh, the, the great advantage that a, that a female cyclist would have. Um, finally, somebody who knows anything replies, I'm disappointed to read some of the comments. Self-supported endurance races um, now have tracking devices, so you can't actually cheat. You know the contestants are the the entrants are GPS tracked, um, and it's not uncommon for women to win or place high in the final standings because there's a whole bunch of skills. It's fitness, ability to diagnose problems and maintain your bike, problem solving, pre-planning about the route, um, you know, adjusting to weather, avoiding injury and foodborne illness. Um, enduring pain, enduring pain, a lot of chance left up to, you know, could be, um, unfortuitous encounters with motor vehicles or animals. Um, races have faced, have been knocked out by bears and deers and dogs in races like this in the past. And since the prize money is $0, there's not a lot of incentive to cheat. So, um, all this libertarian blog skepticism about the woman uh, winner was, uh, unfounded. But you could climb in the back of a hay truck and tell the hay truck to just drive 15 miles an hour. Go slightly faster than a bicycle. And then go to sleep and sleep for six hours while this incredible hay truck manages to drive 15 miles an hour. What is it you they find incredible long. about this hay truck that it can maintain a slow speed on a European country road? For sure, I know that a hay truck can go really slow all day on a European <laughs> road. I don't think there's anything incredible about it. I think that's probably how I would do it. That's your plan for winning the next endurance race? No, because because I have a lot of integrity about cheating. I don't want to cheat or steal. I think the real advantage here would be if you could do what a a whale or a dolphin was and just sleep one hemisphere of your brain at a time. Oh, yeah. Leave one eye open while while you ride. Like nap half your brain while the other half is pedaling away. And then just switch over. Dolphins can do it. I feel like riding your bike fast at night on a r- small road is a n- no-win proposition. Yeah, leave this to the hay trucks. This race should be 100% hay trucks and no bikes. Oh, wow. Hay truck race. Hay truck race. Comfy. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody just goes 15 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. It's what a great way to get from Belgium to Bulgaria. People pile up behind you in BMWs, flashing their lights and honking their horns so mad. And you're just like, you just put it in gear and never touch the gas. I'm into this. Some cycling club should buy like 100 hay trucks. Entry 743.MT1325. Certificate number 27832. Trofim Lysenko. Another popular Russian. In the news, Jamie sent us a note about uh, Jamie's uh, actual science researcher, unlike either of us. Say what? And they sent us a note. That's a thing. <laughs> you're, you're shocked that people actually work in science. Most people don't sit home all day noodling on a base, John. Weird. Uh, Jamie offers to be our full time science researcher. Thank you, Jamie. 
and sent us an email about methylation and is worried we've received too many emails about methylation. Let's see. Let's count the emails we've received about methylation. Let me just open my methylation folder in Gmail. Beep, boop, 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 boop. This is, I told Jamie, this is both the first and the last note we have on methylation, but it's relevant to the Trofim Lysenko show where okay. we talked about some of the um, popular misconceptions about genetics, the, particularly the Lamarckian yeah. fall, or, you know, just the popular stereotype about the Lamarckian fallacy of, uh, of how behavior could change potentially offspring traits. Yeah, I worried a lot uh, when we did this episode that I was going to get hung out to dry by Mendelians uh, on on the order of getting hung out to dry by whiskey you, enthusiasts. You don't want a big gang of Mendelians no. pulling up behind you on their motorcycles when you're in a hay truck. But I feel like I feel like the Mendelians, you know, all nodded patiently at the show. But what 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 do we know about a methylation? Methylation is the process by which a human gene can have a methyl group attached to it, yeah, which actually silences its expression in the future. Is this a thing that you can do? Yes. These silenced genes can be inherited if you have done some behavior. So that basically what that means is there are behavioral things that an organism can do to its body that will change how its genes will pass on because it'll silence the expression, even though the, the DNA hasn't changed. It's chemically silenced the way those will be expressed in itself and its offspring. Can snorting antler velvet uh, affect your your transmission of certain genes. Cool reference to <laughs> to what, John? <laughs> a show many weeks. A in show the future. that will air in May. Ken, <laughs> <laughs> people can't wait now for this antler velvet snorting. Uh, the example that Jamie gives is food deprivation. Oh, of course, right? I mean, wh- yeah, someone who's put up with starvation will actually have their body, you know, retrained to cope with that, and they will actually give birth to offspring that continues to have that um, those traits, that Fa- advantage. Failure of an ability to process sugar and fat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe just the ability to just become 800 pounds if they ever have a normal amount of sugar and fat. Uh, I feel like it's it's well established, right, that, that children born during time of famine tend to be more likely to be one gender than the other? Is that or true? One sex than the other? I think we've talked about that in that twins yeah. show, right? You're more likely to have a uh, I don't know, boy child. If you're in a mafia situation, may it be a maybe? May it be a boy, like a masculine play, child playing the card game mafia at a party? Yeah. If you if, you're, if you and if your you partner slip once. away, <laughs> slip away to a private room at the party. If you enjoy Dungeons and Dragons, there is a ninety percent <laughs> chance that your child will be a furry. The uh, Jamie points out that this was relevant uh, when animal cloning began. You remember the Dolly the Sheep uh, headlines of the what, mid to late 90s, uh, all those attempts failed because the donor genes had to be, de- the donor genes had to be demethylated before stuff that's, you know, worked in theory would actually work in practice. And so does that mean that, um, oh, I see, they weren't demethylated. Yeah. The, I see. The, they had gotten a donor animal who had been methylating various genes with various kinds of behaviors. Maybe a, a sheep that had been snorting antler velvet from, sure. its, own, from its own antlers? Sure. That's sure. so depraved. Sheep don't have antlers, but yes. Okay, a big horn sheep. Oh, oh, those I see. Those, those aren't are, antlers. Yeah, those, those are, are horns. Those are, yeah, those aren't sheep there. You think big horn sheep aren't sheep? I don't think they're sheep. I think wow. big horn sheep, sheep are... Sheep asterisk. 
think, you know what? Should we be the ones policing the sheep community, John? Yeah, you're right. You're I th- right. I think it's time for the sheep to talk. I think that I need to sit down and listen to what the sheep have to say. Are big horn sheep sheep? I think the, re- the repetition of the word sheep there is going to confuse Google. The big horn sheep is a species of sheep. Well, there you go. (laughs) Okay. All right. Do sheep have horns? Most sheep have large curly horns. (laughs) Okay. All right. You've seen the LA Rams helmets. All right. Listen, I'm not from sheep places. I think instead of Googling this on the Adenda Show, we should just ask Alexa. Alexa. Hey, computer. Do sheep have horns? According to an Alexa Answers contributor, some breeds of sheep do, but many others are pole, genetically hornless. But many others are what? Pole? Pole? Are, are genetically hornless. Po- Did she say pole? Pole. Mo- most others are pole, genetically horn- hornless. Some, so some sheep are horny and some sheep are not. It says here that both male and female sheep can have horns, but not all of them do. So I was just saying that the sheep that don't have horns are the ones that don't have horns. Let me find a really weird legal, uh, libertarian legal blog and ask them <laughs> about the differences between men and women. Oh, sheep. sure. Female sheep have horns. Sure they do. Um, well, anyway, so uh, to all of you listening who, when I said sheep don't have horns, jumped out of your chairs screaming. This is why we need a science researcher. Yeah. This is why we need Jamie. Entry 1396.PS10105. Certificate number 36155. Vinegar Valentines. At some point in this entry, I stated that, uh, you know, there's a popular conception that February 14th might be kind of a festival of uh, romance and fertility because this is when birds are nesting and breeding. Even birds. Do it. Birds do it. And I was skeptical. I said I thought mid-February was too early for birds to be shacking up. What? And this is exactly too early in the year, not too not too young. <laughs> like, isn't it still too cold in February? No, there are birds doing it all around. That's what uh, Josh, a local bird watcher, says. Even here, this is the kind of thing you get at Omnibus. Uh, as you, he says, as you might expect, breeding times for birds vary by species and latitude. Duh. Duh. But even here in the damp, cold Pacific Northwest, there are several species which can already breed by Valentine's Day. That is a little early. I wasn't entirely wrong. But he points out that great horned owls could be having chicks on February 14th. I, I mean, really, when you think about it, animals that only give birth in one season, it must mess up their astrology. Hmm. Oh, right. Like Everybody's a every, every great horned owl is, Aries. An, is an Aries, apparently. Um, I was out for a walk in the middle of the night the other night. That's your thing. I'm walking along. I'm in the forest. It's dark and trees. And I hear, which is the call of either the barred owl or the great horned owl, a local owl. And I walked under this tree and I was looking up and, you know, it was kind of the moon was in the sky and I was trying to see the owl. I couldn't see it. And I walked past and I was about, I don't know, 100 feet past where the owl was, and I heard the sound of what could only be five screech monkeys. All this crazy screaming in the tree, and I turned around and was like, 
what is going on? You know, that's not a sound you want when you're alone in the forest in the middle of the night. You don't want howler monkeys at any latitude. It was nuts. The sound that came out of exactly the same tree. And I went, wait a minute. Because I hear owls all the time. Sure. I never heard that before. And I thought, it's a couple owls doing it. It really had to be. All the scrowling and creeping and Could crunching. it have been the result of that? Do you think it could have been a nest full of owlets? Well, no, because I know the sound of a baby owl. You do. And they scream. They scream like somebody being attacked. I thought that's what this was going to turn out no, to be. No, this sounded like a bunch this of- This just noisy owl sex. This just sounded like owl sex. I mean, it, that's what I came to. The other alternative is that it was ghouls. <laughs> In a tree. Yeah, tree ghouls. Tree ghouls. Because ghouls, you know, specifically- uh, You'd think they'd be associated with graveyards, so they'd be in or near the ground. Mm. Ghouls, what, eat corpses, I think? Oh. Ooh. So why would they go into a tree? What are they? Mm. Not a lot mm. of tree corpses. Mm. Mm. In, I don't know. In those corpses. Sky corpses? Uh, sky corpse. That's, you, uh, <laughs> that's where I get all of my, my toiletries. Do you think owls turn their heads all the way around during sex? I wonder. You've seen pictures of owls that don't have their feathers. Yeah, those are creepy. So there's not a lot to the actual sex having part of the owl. <laughs> you don't think the feathers are involved in a big way? I doubt it. Uh, but yeah, boy. It, Wait, hold on. Are you picturing owls taking off, like getting naked, like taking off their feathers in order to to have this kind of congress? No, but it seems like you got to get through the feathers, mm-hmm. and so there's a, there's some there's some negotiating. The parts that have to meet are pretty scrawny. Yeah, and pretty far from one another. If you're if if you're talking about like feather to feather, feather on feather contact. Reading between the lines of Josh's note, I bet the reason why birds tend to breed later is a food supply issue. Oh. Because um, great horned owls do not have seasonal food issues because they're just eating little mice and things year-round. Right. Red crossbills, another species that um, can breed in winter, oh, exclusively eats the seeds from pine cones. So again, that would be a red crossbills can thrive year-round because they're eating a year-round food supply. They don't have to wait for leaves to come back or or trees to go into seed or whatever. Anna's hummingbird had a species that used is a species that used to be further southwest has now ranged north into the Pacific Northwest in the last 50 years and seems to have kept its original nesting timing. So these are the exceptions, not the rules, but there are birds in our neck of the woods that do breed in February and he says many kinds of waterfowl will pair up during the winter and then migrate to their breeding ground, which is smart. You want to uh you know, you, courtship should precede the decision to have kids. It says here that um, that during courtship, barred owls perform a riotous duel of cackles, hoots, caws, and gurgles. Would you say that's what you heard? Yes. A riotous... 100% cackles, uh, hoots, caws, and gurgles. I think the gurgles might mean they're up to something weird. Well, that's the that was the part where I was like... That is a gurgle. And though, and I think that my hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo is definitely a great horned owl. So I'm fr- I think that it's cackles, hoots, uh, calls, and gurgles. Oh, but what, my. But what, does he think, what do you think it means for birds that they're all either Pisces or Aries? It's going to be weird. Uh, well, do Pisces and Aries get along? Maybe that's why the cackles, hoots, uh, calls, and gurgles, because... Because astrologically, none of them are meant to be with one another. And that leads to a lot of gurgling <laughs> in the need, sack. They need, they need a Virgo every once in a while to jazz things up. Entry 106.PR2105. 
Certificate number 47159. Beanie Babies. We talked a lot about the modern resale value of Beanie Babies because even though that's a market that, a fad that famously ended in a market that crashed, we were talking about how you could still find abundant Beanie Baby reselling going on on eBay to this day. And I knew um, that uh, among the futurelings and listeners to the show, there would be, and I'm differentiating those two groups, uh, there would be a lot of firsthand accounts and uh, testimonials about Beanie Baby culture because it's it's inescapable. Uh Henry pointed me at a Vice article from a few years ago which speculates on why there is such a robust eBay resale community for Beanie Baby. Even now. A thing no one wants. Oh, yes. thank you, Vice. Because there are... Um, Did they also uh, do a do's and don'ts about Beanie Babies, or is that a <laughs> reference that's too old for anybody? Uh, that reference might be too old for me. Hmm. Uh they, because, you know, these are Beanie Babies that collectors will be well aware they're, you know, even something like that Princess Diana bear that everyone thought was going to be a limited edition. So everyone bought 10 and then it turned out it was just a momentary supply chain issue caused by the abruptness of uh, the Princess of Wales death. Right. But there are hundreds of thousands of them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so everybody thinks this is what they're going to put their kid through college with. And there's a bajillion of them. And yet, even though collectors know that they are really only worth, you know, 15 bucks or whatever, they'll sell on eBay for $25,000 sometimes. What? So you mean based on absolutely nothing except that the person didn't do any research? Well, Vice got into this. And Vice has come up with two possibilities for this after-sale market. One is that it's eBay uh, fraud. Oh. People are people because um, this is you know eBay has a lot of buyer protections, but the sellers kind of hung out to dry. But there's still things the seller can do to confound the ability to use eBay to price stuff. You know, you can uh, buy something from yourself from an artificially high price, right? And then it looks like cancel the sale. Never, and you can see why someone would do that. They want to create the impression. That in a quick search, you can see, oh, this item does sell for thousands of dollars. Now, I've always wondered, you know, of course, I spend quite a bit of time thinking about money laundering, just in case I ever come into any ill-gotten gains. I wonder if there's a way you could launder money through weird eBay uh, Beanie Baby sales. This was Vice's second oh, hypothesis. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good, good. Vice and I have always thought alike. Vice is, Vice.com assumes that many of these weird eBay transactions are absolutely money laundering. Oh. Give somebody $25,000 for a $5 Iggy the Iguana and... What IRS agent is going to complain? Because the, they're going to go on eBay and it's like, oh, well, I guess that's what they should And think. nobody's the wiser. So nobody, there's not, not actually any, I mean, they interview some Beanie Baby... Um, Collector, knowledgeable collectors, people who know that these sales are not legit, but it's all, they never find, a, there's no smoking gun. Nobody on the inside ever talks, but the supposition of everyone in the Beanie Baby community is when you see one of these high prices, it's either eBay fraud, eBay manipulation, or money laundering. So what is the top price for a legit Beanie Baby? Like the Beanie Baby culture, as you say. Like they're still trading beanie babies. Is five hundred bucks crazy, or 
Are there some that are fifteen hundred bucks? I mean, people point out that a lot of the people, a lot of the sellers listing these prices may just be you know aspirational um, oh. uh, lay people who who found a Beanie Baby, have an idea that these things are rare, and put it up for a very high price because they've still got the the nineties era received wisdom that these things are valuable. You see this in the Filson bag trading community <laughs> of which I'm a, a fairly prominent member. You go on eBay sometimes and there's a whole set of Filson bags, like a whole segment of the Filson bags that are on sale are way more expensive than you can buy them from the store. Like a $350 bag or a $400 bag is $900. And do they ever sell? Who knows? I, they just clog up my feed, frankly. I mean, you can look at sold listings and see which of those actually sold, but again, that won't weed out ones that sold to a fake buyer. Right. Um, and sometimes it won't even show the final price because you'll just see the list price with an X through it like, I took an offer, and you don't know if that person took an offer that was $800 less. I think there's a European market for them, or I know there hmm. is, a large one, and maybe in Finland to get one from the U.S. is ends up costing that much? Beats me. The premise of this Vice article is really that Beanie Babies are largely worthless. Yeah. Um, that was my know, feeling. That you can go to a Goodwill and find them for a dollar each. And, you know, they actually interview somebody who has been trying to, uh, an interview who's been trying to move their parents' Beanie Babies on eBay and is finding that in practice, you just can't do it. They're which, worth a dollar. Which means all these big sales are bogus, but who knows what they are. But you could do, I mean, I wonder if you said Beanie Baby Lot and sold 500 Beanie Babies all at once, whether just the, just the like appeal of the, of the group. What is the appeal? I find, wouldn't that be a rarer buyer that wants 500 of these things? Well, like sometimes I'll go online and, and you know, it's like, oh, well, this Zippo lighter from Vietnam is $40, but this guy over here is selling 20 Zippo lighters from Vietnam for $100. And is that what you do? And then I, that's why, you know, I have so many World War One medals. Because a guy was like, I've got... What's your plan? Do you, do you, in the moment, are you like, I'll resell these? No, no, no. I don't resell anything. No, I'm, what it usually is, is I'm looking for a set of cufflinks that have a skull and crossbows on them. And the only place I can find it is some guy that's like, I got 600 cufflinks and, and World War I medals. And I'm like, sold. Sold. Well, now you all know how to scam John. I was trying to buy some Star Wars figures for my kid. And found this lot that was like 600 Star Wars figures. And I bought them. And and she said to me at one point, she was like, I have every, because I, I haven't given them all to her. I invented a character called the Star Wars Fairy. You were trickling them out, I remember. Yeah, and I would hide them around the house. And she would find somebody pointing a blaster at her from a teacup. And uh, she said at one point, like, I have a lot of Star Wars figures, but a lot of them are just somebody that's in the background in a cantina. <laughs> like none of these people have any speaking roles. You'd think the Star Wars fairy by the law of averages would eventually get to the, some of the collectible ones. Well, I've given and her, yet. you know, the main characters, right? She's got Ray and she's got Luke Skywalker, but also <laughs> she's right. All these guys with elephant heads and giant ears. Like, you should give those in bulk. Like, one day she wakes up and she's got 20 walrus man under her pillow. I've done that. There, were, there, was, uh, there was one point where she, she found on some bookshelf, like, 10 stormtroopers all guarding some prisoner in handcuffs. Yeah. She was pretty thrilled about that. Entry 788.mk1242. 
Certificate number 40326. The mill. The mill is a thousandth of a dollar. A so tenth, you say. A tenth of a cent. You seem skeptical. <laughs> we did a whole episode on it, and I'm still like, mm-hmm. Well, apparently, you know, it was very hard for us to keep track of the fact that it was a thousandth of a dollar. Like, we would often just accidentally say a hundredth of a cent or, uh, right. uh, you know, we, we would get the fraction wrong. It's a tenth of a cent, a thousandth of a dollar. But we got it wrong enough that a listener named C. Harold, sure. C. Harold Run, uh, asked if I had ever seen the famous... <laughs> 30-minute transcript of the Verizon math call. Are you aware of the Verizon math uh, consumerist movement? No, but this is right up my alley, whatever it is. I, I commend to all our listeners the now-archived uh, Verizon math blog, which was a caller who... Um, it's somebody named George calling Verizon to say that he had been assured multiple times that his Canadian roaming plan or whatever it was, was 0.02 cents per kilobyte. Okay. And they said, yes, it's 0.02 cents per kilobyte. And he was like, well, I got my bill and you actually, you know, and I, I, I you know, I, I used a data accordingly. And now I suddenly have a bill for $75. You were literally off by two orders of magnitude. This is a hundred times more than it should be. And they're like, no, sir, our system works. The math is right. It's 0.02 cents. And he's like, no, you're charging me 0.02 dollars or a fifth of a cent. And he's like, yeah, 0.02 dollars. That's what I said. No, you said 0.02 cents. He's like, it's a 30-minute conversation trying to convince this guy and, and his manager that 0.02 dollars and 0.02 cents are not the same thing. Uh-huh. Because apparently even on the marketing side, Verizon could not keep track of this. And they were repeatedly telling customers a price that was one one hundredth of the actual price. Uh, because they couldn't figure out why $0.02 and $0.02 were not the same quantity. Wow. I am going to read this transcript because George sounds like my hero. You will get... <laughs> <laughs> Although he might be a maniac. I wish he lived next door. You can find a full transcript if you don't want to spend a half hour on this. And then you get things like mumbles something about Canada in, uh, in square brackets. Oh, you say I could find it. I have it up already. <laughs> and it goes on and on. And on. There's a full Verizon Math blog where he interacts with other people. He never gets satisfaction, by the way. I think they eventually give him a 50% refund oh. when it should have been, you know, they when they owed him 100 bucks. He's one of the guys that, that collects uh, 50,000 green stamps in order to, you know, to get one ballpoint pen. Or, or tries to pay his phone bill in pennies <laughs> only to get a nasty letter from AT&T. Yeah, or his, uh, or his alimony. Also in that show, we mentioned... Uh, we talked a lot about the zinc lobby, which is keeping pennies alive. And we speculated on what you might actually do with zinc in a world without... In a world. In, in a world without the penny. And I think at some point I realized that you use zinc and brass, so there must be some use of alloys. Uh, sure, you take it as a as a supplement. Dave wrote in to say that... Uh, beep, I have the wrong Dave all of a sudden. Beep! Dave wrote in to point out that most zinc is actually used in galvanized steel. Oh, of course. You harden steel by putting a little yeah. a little zinc in it. But he went on Corrosionpedia. Do you ever uh, do you ever research much on Corrosionpedia? Yeah, it's bookmarked here on my browser. Is it your main yeah. your main wiki about corrosion? About industrial corrosion. Yeah. To point out that a big use for zinc is uh, through the the uh, the physical process of cathode protection. If you've got 
a big metal thing in the ocean, it kind of becomes a battery. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, in, in salt water, sure. Um, your metal is going to corrode super fast because, how does this work? Electron flow from the, which way would it go? The flow. I don't want to. I don't want to nail myself down here. No, I'm. You, you can hear me just, just tiptoeing in. You're going to repeat whatever I say. Not an electrician. So what you do on your on your uh, boat hull or on your pier, or, you know, whatever it is that's in salt water and has metal, you make a big sacrificial anode. You just oh. put a big lump of zinc on it, which is more attractive to all those electrons. It's like a catalytic converter. Is that how catalytic converters work? I believe that they're, uh, that all the rare earths in a catalytic converter catalyze. They're just better at they, they capture more of something than, than yeah. the metal your other the rest of your car is based and on. So they you know all that stuff gradually is transformed into uranium two thirty eight, um, and that's probably what happens to the zinc in seawater. So your thing will rust or, or corrode as we say on corrosion PDM. Yeah, but if you've got a big fake lump of zinc there being like, hey, electrons Wait, over it's a here. real lump of zinc. It's just pretending to be something else. It's a, yes. It's a fake lump of zinc in that it's a lump of zinc that is super fake. Yeah, right. Superficial I'm, I'm lump so, of I'm zinc. I'm so tired of fake people and fake lumps of zinc. How big a lump of zinc does it have to be? I guess you just, I mean, it must just be a huge hunk because you want it to keep, you want it for the life of that rudder or whatever. You want right. it to be the one that's rusting away instead of your you know, your iron or steel or aluminum or whatever else you've got down there. It's a chonk hunk of zinc. Chonk zinc. Chonk with a O-N-C. Yeah. In mimicry of zinc. We also talked a lot in that show about, um, you know, how there would have to be price rounding in a world without a penny. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was not aware of this. You ever been to Whataburger? Yeah. We don't have it here, right? Or do we? There's a Whataburger that's within driving distance of here, but I don't I don't know. It's there's they aren't in Seattle. Whataburger. I believe it's a range. It's a Texas chain, right? Yeah, but there's there's Whataburger. Find the nearest Whataburger. Hey Alexa. Hey computer. Where's the nearest Whataburger? Hmm, jerk. All right. It says there are 37 in Florida, 34 in New Mexico. There are none closer to us than Oh, I got the list Colorado. here. Colorado, yeah. There's one in Colorado. As you know, Arizona has 31? Yeah. When you're on tour, you know, you end up in Whataburger country or whatever burger country, or you, steak and shake, you know, you cross these lines and you're in famously in Waffle House territory. But the Whataburger's a yeah, it's a damn good burger. They uh price-wise will always round order totals to the nearest 25 cents. Oh, how good of them. Yeah. So they so they round down if if it's the case. Yeah, it, uh, it, I don't know, that's a good question. John just says they round to the nearest. And I feel like a chain would actually always round down and price accordingly, but are they accounting for tax? They must. Yeah. Um it must be after tax prices cuz the idea I think is to reduce I'm sure the idea is not to be good citizens of a penny-free world. It's just to simplify math for their cashiers but isn't that the same i've certainly <laughs> i've certainly been in the situation of handing remember when we used to all have change and you would actually give someone too much change so you would get a good you get good change back yep yep 
you know, if the price had 17 cents in it, you would be, here's an extra eight cents. Give me a quarter. Exactly. Here's and, $13.08. And I have mystified so many airport fast food cashiers yeah, by trying to pull this maneuver. Stand there and look at you and you're well, like, why are you giving me eight cents? Just sir? punch the number into your, into your cash register. It'll all work out. It'll all become clear. I'm sure. Um, John's question is regarding that, or even the the new thing. Have you ever seen the thing now where they give you a price and then they're like, or you can just round, the drugstore will do this, or round up to nine bucks and we'll give seventy six cents to Warm Houses Fund, or uh, yeah, that that's and I always do. Do Do you like that? Yeah, mm, no, because it always feels like oh, all right, fine, you know, like I don't, I have zero faith that you are donating any real that's, proportion. Of that's this. the question I always have. Yeah, it's like uh-huh. this can't be the best way to uh, ninety two to cents. maximize my seventy two cents here. Uh, John asks whether either of these practices is compatible with Marxism, and he'll take his answer off the air. What do you think? Uh, is it compatible with Marxism? Yes. What a burger rounding prices to the nearest quarter. That's oh. a certain kind of Soviet efficiency. Yeah, it's also, I think, mm, no, I mean, I guess if they rounded, no, you would have to round down depending on your need and round up up depending on your ability. So what you're saying is the take a penny, leave a penny jar is compatible with Marxism. Yes. But no other register-based <laughs> math gimmick. I do believe that you can use dialectical materialism to determine any whether anything is uh, compatible with Marxism, but you do have to work. The dialectic works like this. The cashier tells me what it costs. I tell him what I can, what I would like to pay. Yeah. And through our conversation, a new price emerges. Yeah. It's the, the, then the cashier, because they are, because they are uh, compatible with Marxism, because they've had a proper education, then they can determine by talking to you what your ability to pay is. Mm-hmm. And then they can think about what they need. It's the power of the dialectic. Yeah. Although you would all just be working together to make a Whataburger. You wouldn't be selling it. Yeah. You'd nobody be, would be selling anything. No, what, Whataburger would have been collectivized by the state and everyone gets a delicious high quality Whataburger anytime they're, anytime they're a they little want. bit hungry. That's right. There we go. That's the Whataburger utopia. Except my needs are 800 Whataburgers a day. <laughs> See, this is immediately why Marxism always fails. The thing is that corrupt uh, <laughs> corrupt people like you, John, gaming the Whataburger system. What I want to do, Ken, is sleep on a bed of 800 warm Whataburgers every day. How long will they be warm? Well, like that's the thing. 10 you, minutes tops. You fall asleep on a warm bed of Whataburgers, and then as it cools and congeals, you, you, know, you then are cooled by cold Whataburgers throughout your night. And that's what you want. You want to be cool in the night. Hot side stays hot, cold side stays but cold. But then in the, ne- the next day, when you're tired, you want 800 fresh, warm Whataburgers. You don't want to just take the whole whatever Whataburger envelope you have all this stuff is and toss it in a microwave and get it ready to go again? No, because you're going to, that is pretty soon it's going to be stale, then it's going to start to smell sour. No, you want fresh Whataburgers every day. Have you ever seen the thing where people will just find an old McDonald's hamburger or cheeseburger sitting somewhere and it's perfectly edible? Find? Yeah. They get lost? Not, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know, just refrigerated and forgotten, or maybe oh. even not even refrigerated, maybe just like in a glove compartment. I feel oh. like it's a common internet find. And the funny thing is the bun, the pickle, the cheese, the patty, everything looks exactly as it did when minted at Golden Arches. So it really just kind of shows the the level to which McDonald's has perfected food. I'm going to wonder, I'm going to wonder... 
what the circumstances would be where you would have a McDonald's burger and then go, I'm just going to put this in the glove compartment. Like, oh, you know, I got pulled over. Cops coming up. You know, I'll slip the, the, the cheeseburger in the glove compartment so the cop doesn't see it. Or maybe so when I open the glove box to pull out my registration, the hey, cop officer. sees the cheeseburger. Or. Yeah. What do you say? And you hand over the thing, but it's wrapped in a cheeseburger. What if I gave you this uh, this that is this paper that has been signed by Ray Kroc? Uh, I maybe it's just a sign of my depravity, but I can envision so many circumstances where I would just find a cheeseburger stashed in food box. in a place where I did not remember stashing it. I mean, in college, I used to every once in a while look under my bed and find half a pizza that I didn't remember how it got there, and I always ate that. This is the most humiliating story. <sighs> I might have told this before, but I once, before a school trip, we we hit Burger King on the way out of town, and I was like, wait a second. Burger King has dollar Whoppers right now. And I should get 15. That's what I did, and I and I and because I was going to the frozen north, and I was, you know, we were this was a school we were going to, I don't know where we were going, uh, Minneapolis or something. In February, and I was like, guess what? I've got refrigeration tech uh, provided by Minnesota. Right. I'm just going to buy $10 Whoppers, wow. and I'm going to eat these all weekend. Wow. And I did. And everyone thought, this is a terrible idea, but you know what? I just ate cold or microwaved Whoppers. That's awesome. All weekend. I don't think that's humiliating at all. I think that's fantastic. It's certainly budget conscious. It's like going to White Castle, except... If you're a giant. <laughs> and it lasts longer. It's like the the, the um, tantric version of, right. of eating 10 White Castles. And it doesn't have those terrible diced onions that White Castles have. Entry 772.PR2516. Certificate number 31531. The Megavitamin Craze. Linus Pauling convincing everyone that vitamins are a cure-all. As oh, long as I you thought you were going to say Linus Pauling wrote in. <laughs> Yeah, Linus Pauling, despite having died in the <laughs> 90s, I think, Linus Pauling is a lively correspondent. No, we did, but we did hear from another celebrity, Alan Joseph, who has uh, actually was a Jeopardy contestant, oh. um, who show, as we record this, will air in a few weeks. Oh, a Jeopardy contestant in the modern era. Were you the host? I was indeed the host. Okay. But now that his show has um, already, his, you know, his Jeopardy experience is already taped, I guess, He's allowed to uh, to send in omnibus addenda and corrections, <laughs> core agenda. <laughs> did uh, did he talk to you about omnibus when he appeared on the show? I believe so. A few times on set, somebody has been like, "Ken, I like your podcast." Hey, Ken. Um, it's weird, especially now that like the host and the contestants have to be like COVID six feet apart at all times. Oh, you don't get a lot of you don't go over and kiss everybody chat time at like, the, like Richard Dawson used to. <laughs> But a few times during the social distance six-foot photo, somebody has been like, I like your podcast. Um, but Alan uh, is a pediatric ICU physician, so we have another science researcher on, okay. on call should we ever need one. And he, wanted to, he wondered if we had ever heard the story of Paul Merrick. Which the, was, the elephant man? Yes. <laughs> have you heard the story of Paul Merrick <laughs> in uh, Victorian England with the weird-shaped head? No, Paul Merrick was a, um, he's a physician, but kind of an unorthodox one. Oh. Uh, Does he sometimes turn into a... Yes. Mr. Jekyll? Oh, no, oh, I see no, what you're saying. Uh, Mr. Hyde? He sometimes turns into a, the metaphorical Mr. Hyde of kind of a 
contrarian Joe Rogan podcast guest, okay. if that's what you mean. All right. So worse than Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Mr. Hyde just beat up prostitutes with his cane. Like, this guy's doing a lot more harm than that, honestly. Uh, he, it was kind of a repeat of the Linus Pauling news cycle in the, in the last decade. Um, Alan, being a pediatric ICU physician, knows better than anyone that sepsis um, is a very common ICU problem. You know, kind of that immediate life-threatening result of infection. Um, in 2017, Paul Merrick published a study saying that there was incredible anti-sepsis, antiseptic benefit to an IV with a cocktail of hydrocortisone, mm-hmm. just a steroid, megavitamin C, and megavitamin B1. Mm-hmm. This would have revolutionized, apparently, um, emergency room and ICU practice. Oh, if you could just fix sepsis by giving everybody uh, vitamin if, C and vitamin B1. If it were true, it is the cold fusion of, of emergency sepsis. room sepsis. That's correct. And Merrick went on a real um, PR crusade for this new therapy. And in fact, claiming that my results were so are so persuasive that it would be unethical to do more research along these lines. Because mm-hmm. this is an argument that does happen. You know, you've heard about this, right? Sometimes a drug study will conclude because it's so clear that the benefit is there that you're actually breaking the Hippocratic Oath by giving the placebo to half the people. Right. You know, like you're actively doing harm by not giving everybody the drug. I'm in that situation right now with a friend who is debating whether or not to sign up for a clinical trial. And the drug is available in its components over the counter. You can put together a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, a, and are know. they telling him he has to do this? Well, no. And they're saying, but this combination of these things mm. in a single drug is going through stage three clinical trials. And 50% of the people will receive a placebo. And this person has a degenerative disorder. And they're like, do I go through this? <laughs> right. In order to help the people you know, who have this disorder down the line where this drug is prescribed, or do I just go buy some magnesium and some, you know, like buy the five things and, and take them? Because your odds are, you know, if, if half the people get the placebo or whatever, your odds are not great, right? Yeah. It's like, why would I spend two years? I'd like to be part of the clinical trial and get the drug. And it's stage three, you know, but I was like, oh, that is a little bit of a trolley problem. I mean, generally in those cases, they blunt that effect by making sure that all the the trial subjects, placebo or not, end up getting the drug if it works ahead of general approval, right? Yeah, 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 right, right. But, I mean, if it's, if this trial is going to go on for years, I can see why he'd be reluctant. Well, and also, like, oh, I guess I'm going to spend two more years with this degenerative thing that there's actually, you know, like, widely accepted cure. Hmm. In this case, nobody believed Dr. Merrick's um, call that nobody should check his work because... It's so obviously good that everyone should do it. So there were a bunch of large-scale, well-run studies, and essentially all of them have debunked the the megavitamin, the vitamins he wanted in the dosage. The vitamins essentially do, if not nothing, almost nothing, and not a not a game changer for sure. I wondered, you know, we concluded in that episode that megavitamins not only maybe didn't do anything, but maybe were bad for you. Adverse effects. And I wondered if anybody was going to write in and, you know, there are a lot of megavitamin 
people. I went to my high school reunion and one of the guys from my high school was like, oh yeah, man, you know, mega vitamins. I sell them out of my, out of the trunk of my car. And I was like, oh, so you're like a quack. And he was really offended. He was like, what? No, I'm a drug dealer. What are you talking about? I sell vitamins. Are you kidding me? I'm like one of the heroes. So, so <laughs> Look no, for the helpers, John. So nobody, nobody wrote in and said, actually, vitamins are good? We did not hear from any... What what G what is that store called? Yeah, GNC. GNC franchise owner. Oh, well, I'm I'm, no. I'm 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 curious about that. Well, it's just you know most of our listeners are science researchers. Alan says that like uh, Linus Pauling, Merrick really doubled down. You know, the more the more evidence came in, and in fact, it it, it appears to be the case where he got even more radicalized by the objection. Hmm, weird. And now he's now he's peddling ivermectin for for yeah. COVID nineteen. So the point is never. Use science to disagree with anyone. Nope. You might just, they might just dig in their position. In fact, if somebody's racist, it's probably your fault. They were probably a little racist, and then you pointed it out, and they were like, I have no choice but to become way more racist now. What I want, you know, for a while there, I realized, oh, don't go on the internet because don't argue with cranks. And for whatever reason, you can't keep from arguing with cranks. And then I realized, yeah. oh, wait, maybe I'm a crank. <laughs> And by not being on the internet, I'm just helping other people not argue with cranks. The thing about arguing with cranks, you know, obviously it makes you crazy, but you're saying it's not helping the crank either. You're no. just making them dig in. Yeah, you're making the crank worse. because So you're actually helping the world by not, exactly. by not arguing with cranks online. Anything anyone else says to anyone else online is worse than if they hadn't said it. And, because the online is worse than the not online. The upside down is worse than the right side up. And so me being offline, I think, is a net positive for everyone. Nature is healing. Entry 726.MT0908. Certificate number 39341. Listomania. Uh, Zach is a big classical music fan and actually gave the thumbs up. To the classical music themed episode, which is always nice. Oh, good. When you know you, you're good. not an expert on a subject, but the experts are willing to go with your version. Sure, that checks out. Um, I mean, it checks out that he's also a huge classical music fan that would listen to the omnibus. He has uh, more of an addenda than a correction uh, in the story. If you'll recall, Franz Liszt um, is about to join the clergy, and then he sees a very inspiring Paganini concert and the virtuosic. Uh, violin playing of Paganini persuades him to stick with music. Um, but what's interesting is there's a second phase in Liszt's life that I did not know about that we did not discuss, which is later in life, I think he lost two children. Hmm. Um, I think one in their teens and one in their 20s. And he was just, as you can imagine, just demolished by by the death of two of his children and as so many people do in that situation, found religion oh. and became a Franciscan. Okay. But not like fully, like at the, I think at this time, the Franciscan order was so popular because who doesn't like Francis of Assisi chilling with the, the little woodland animals? Yep. They're awesome. Still big. Um, yeah. Bigger than ever, honestly. <laughs> like Franciscans have never been cooler. I know a Franciscan. There is something called the Third Order of St. Francis, which was developed as a way the to... The Third Order? Wait a minute. 
Is this from Star Wars? No. What, what is what? The, oh, no. Maybe that's a... God, it's like another Star Wars thing. I don't know what the Third Order is. If it's some, like, Third Reich thing, I don't know it. Well, I, isn't it one of the... Oh, no. Look at this. The Third Order are lay members of religious orders. Yeah, so yeah. if you're the first and second order of St. Francis, you actually have to take vows like celibacy, which tends to cut down on your applicants. Dig it. So in order to make it more for everybody, um, St. Francis did more kind of like the fan club or karaoke version mm-hmm. of, of being a monk. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these orders created a third order whereby you would still take holy orders um, and have some... You can wear a, a, a robe. ...religious duties, but you don't... You don't take any vows you don't live in community you, you gather together so you, you go to conventions basically but you don't have to live in a monastery and Franz list actually became abbe list like really he became he be, became a what ecclesiastical catholic authority he gave himself he got the tonsure he shaved his head like a monk and so this would be you know and as you'll recall from the show he was one of the biggest sex symbols and celebrities in Europe. Right. And suddenly this guy is finding religion and shaving his head. So it must have been kind of like the surprise you get when Cat Stevens becomes Muslim or Britney Spears shaves her head or something. It was an unexpected third act. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. And I feel like you and I are both third order members of the Kentucky Colonels. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) No, we're dues-paying Kentucky Colonels. I do definitely feel like if I were offered the opportunity to be a third order Mason, where I didn't actually have to do any of the Mason stuff, but I got to wear all the Mason uh, regalia. You can still do that. Yeah. It's not officially. I mean, I don't want to, you know, Amy Mann and uh, Michael Penn have a bunch of Masonic stuff in their house. like Just like as decor? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, hats with feathers in them and big red crosses and all that stuff. And it really inspired me. So I went out and bought a bunch of Masonic swords. I've probably got nine. Wait, why do the Masons have swords? Oh, they do all kinds of swordy stuff. With I had each no other. idea. Yeah, they are sword. they are they are they um, fencing or are they dubbing each other things? No, or they're more like pledging swords. What else can you do with a sword? What would you call these swords? They're you know they don't keep them sharp. Yeah, uh, they're ceremonial swords, but they're they're not broad swords. They're like they're uh, somewhere in between. They're you know. Uh, what would you call them? Knights of the Round Table. They're you know they're not epees. They're not. They don't look like little fencing sabers. No, they're but they're thinner than a broadsword. They're swords. You know what? I guess proper swords. Uh, but and they have all kinds of fancy helmets on them, and their scabbards are fancy, and they wear them as part of their Masonic uniforms. And I didn't want hats with feathers on them, but I did want swords. So I have an umbrella stand inside uh, inside the door of my house that's got. Well, and not just Masonic swords, I have to admit. Other swords, A bunch too. of ceremonial swords. Well, and some of them real swords. Although, let me tell you, Ken, not any samurai swords or broadswords because I'm not a nerd. Yeah, you have the kind of swords that a cool guy puts in an umbrella stand. Exactly. When he sees some weird decor at Amy Mann's house and decides, you know what, I need to own something even weirder. Well... <laughs> This inspires me. Weirder. Sure. It's she, more practical. They've got they've got Masonic uh, aprons or whatever, yeah. and you're like, aprons? Come on, Michael Penn. Yeah. <laughs> Get real. I mean, sort of an umbrella stand. La, la, la. Zach had a couple other uh, notes. Uh, briefly, in the Nadia's theme show, we wondered how to pronounce Dothan, Alabama, and he was one of several people who replied that we got it right. It is Dothan. Oh, nice. We were too lazy to look it up. He also points out, when it comes to international cable protection... Um, this is a, a very varied... This is an omnibus... Uh, uh, letter, yeah. Omnibus email to omnibus. 
uh, it had bullet points. He, uh, he, we talked about keeping sharks off of those cables. And he said that one of Julia Child's assignments when she was with the OSS. Do you know this part of her origin story? I do, but I didn't know it had a shark on cable component. Yeah, I guess uh, combining her, well, I guess she wouldn't have had the culinary interest yet, right? Because she had just barely got to, I mean, she'd gotten to France maybe and had her first life-changing Sol Meunier or whatever. Right, she ate a chicken and was like, wait a minute. I hate chicken, (laughs) (laughs) she said. (laughs) No, she loved chicken. I'm going to roast a chicken today. She, uh, one of her tasks was to actually cook, make something that would, that would serve as shark repellent. Wait a minute. Is this like a a zinc chunk? It's a (laughs) zinc chunk, but it's a, it's a shark. Fake shark zinc, fake chunk, shark zinc chunk. Yeah. Yes. She made a fake shark chunk, zinc chunk. So she made a chunk, zinc chunk for sharks. And what you dang you, you you wrap it around the cable? It actually wasn't for cables. They were at this time they were worried about mines. So you wanted to keep sharks oh, from eating mines. Keep sharks from eating mines. That destroys the mine and the shark. It doesn't do anybody any good. Um, so they would put something that tasted bad on all their underwater mines. To, oh, she made something that tasted bad. Uh, a, you thought it was shark attractant? <laughs> well, like a shark, a a, a chunk, a chick chunk, chunk chunk, chick tracked. Shark chunk, but the but the but it's a shark repellent. Yeah, it's something that keeps the shark from trying to eat the thing. Because I thought it was a thing where the shark ate the thing oh, instead of the other thing. Ah, yeah, see, like oh no, the shark's on its way. But oh look, a chicken. Yeah, that's what she did. She just I'm going to make a delicious chicken cordon bleu for the sharks. Wait, I was I could do it a second ago, and I can't do it. Yeah, it's pretty close. Eh. Julia Child does sound more like someone doing an impression of her than any other celebrity for sure. Yeah, although. Uh, Although uh, Paul Hogan from uh, Australia also sounds more like an impression of himself than he, than he does of himself. Entry 453.EX1524. Certificate number 25939. Fanta. This was a free-for-all for everybody to tell us about their favorite weird sodas. Oh, boy. The internet, am I right? And I think I may have... People I'm- really come after me about saying pop. Like, they just can't accept it. One thing I heard is that a lot of those region, regionalisms for you know either saying Coke or pop instead of soda are now generational. That they've been so ironed out by mass culture that even yeah. in the South, young people will say soda and 50 and up will say Coke. Yeah, somebody said to me uh, in the 40 letters I received, like, I grew up in the Northwest and I don't say pop. And I'm like, how old are you, ding-a-ling? You're 35. <laughs> like... They don't, nothing is the same as it was. The oh, Northwest looked so different in 75. But I wonder if that explains why you're a pop person and I'm a soda person. It's just a, it's just the seven year gap in our ages. I think so. Straddles the, the pop soda line. Yeah. There, there was such an enormous flip somewhere in the early to mid eighties where the, where all of the regionalisms of the United States just got, it was like, well, we put in a Denny's out by the highway and there's a, and that's it. You know, everybody eats at Denny's now and whatever your mom and pop place where you called it pop, you called pop, pop, and you called soda hey, pop. pops, give me a pop. It's all gone because Sherry's has the best pie. We also heard from many um, overseas listeners who have Fanta opinions. Oh, and super gross weird sodas, I bet. <laughs> super gross weird sodas. Uh, Matthias, I hope I'm saying that right, from Germany, uh, wanted us to know about... Um, the milk-flavored sodas of Switzerland, which actually I had tried last summer. and That sounds kind of good. 
Uh, we ordered one just to, after Googling what it We saw it on every menu. We finally looked it up and was like, oh, this is like, this is just like original Apple Way Fanta probably. Yeah. And it was not bad. Um, if you put, if you put milk and orange pop together, it tastes like a creamsicle. <laughs> but it might curdle the milk. No. Oh, the pop part. Well, the, I guess it won't. It's not, it's actually not acidy enough probably. I mean, there's a reason why milk and orange juice together don't taste like creamsicle. Yeah. But milk and orange pop. We did get corrected by a couple of Europeans. You know, we, t- we said that orange and grape were the canonical Fanta flavors. And that is not true overseas, where grape soda is kind of unheard of. I bet they think it tastes like medicine, just like, <laughs> just like root beer and Dr. Pepper. So what are the flavors other than orange? I don't even know of a flavor in Europe other than orange. Uh, Strawberry? Let's see. All uh, I ever see is orange. I guess, you know, there's still, there is lemon lime Fanta, but he says Sprite is, oh. 7-Up is kind of the oddity. Sprite is the classic lemon lime. Yeah, that's right. You see Europe. Sprite everywhere and you never see 7-Up. I assume that's just um, Coke's yeah. hegemony. That might be true in the U.S. now. When was the last time you saw 7-Up compared to Sprite? It's I think, true. I think Coke might have done it. They they beat them down. I'm old enough for, for 7-Up to seem like the default. Well, right. 7-Up was the stuff and Sprite was some upstart. We mentioned Africola. Yeah. Briefly on the show. Somebody uh, wrote to say that there was like an Africola vending machine in UW's McMahon Hall into the 90s, which means, I don't know why it would have been there, but it means I could have been drinking I've had heavily caffeinated Afri- Africola. Africolas. Matthias has a theory, a pet theory about Africola. Have you ever looked at the um, logo of Africola? Yes, I have. Can you picture it? The kind of the palm tree? Yeah. Here's his follow-up question. Have you ever looked at the logo of um, the Third Reich's Africa Corps? Yes. It's very similar, isn't it? It is very similar. So he always assumed that there was one of these kind of um, you know, just Nazi heritage in the, in the European brand, which is not unheard of in European branding, you know, Volkswagen and so forth. Right. But in fact, after doing more research... It also makes sense that you would just use a palm tree for your little logo. So yeah, so it could be parallel evolution. But he, when he looked this up, he found out that the Africola logo actually predates the Africa, Africa Corps... By 10 years. It's like a 20s era logo. And Africa Corps modeled their logo on Africola? That's what he's wondering. Could the Africa Corps insignia designers have thought, you know, well, what's the iconography of North Africa? Oh, it's Africola. I bet that's true. I mean, it's pretty similar. Yeah. But Matthias says he has no evidence for this and has never found anyone who agrees. Oh, so. Matthias, I think you might be onto something, my friend. Wow. He was one of... He was also one of many, before you get too into this guy, he was one of many people who roasted you for saying that Urn Brew was Irish instead of Scottish. I know. I, I, you know, I can't believe that I said that because I know Urn Brew is Scottish. Didn't I even say other things about it that were Scottish? I think and I so. just Maybe accidentally just said Irish. I don't know why, I don't know how I would have done that, but except for the fact that there's no difference between Irish and Scottish. But I got in trouble in that same episode for saying that a post a, a British army recruitment postcard pointing at the viewer was a ripoff of Uncle Sam. And Matthias oh, points out that it's actually around. the other way around. Yeah. The Uncle Sam poster is based on a World War 1 era poster of Lord Kitchener. Yeah, I think I knew that. Uh, pointing at the Sorry viewer say. saying that we need to be called up. I think I had heard that too and I forgot. Did I mention in the Fanta show by the way that um did I recommend the root beer store up in Linwood that has all kinds of weird sodas? Novelty bacon-flavored sodas, hmm. orange Fanta that's purple, and grape Fanta that's orange? Perhaps you didn't. 
I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but uh, Mindy was just drove by it the other day and was sad to report that it had closed. Everything good is closed. The Rupert store did not survive COVID. I just discovered in looking at Africa Core stuff that there's a there's a place online that just sells old Nazi helmets that got found in the dirt, and I don't want one. Do you want to sleep on a mattress full of microwaved Nazi helmets? Mm, no. No, there's a limit. There's a limit for sure. Jim sent us my favorite Fanta note. Uh, have you ever had a fan shop, a beloved drink in Chile? No. Jim says he was once taking try, try to take a ferry across the Strait of Magellan to Tierra del Fuego, but uh, due to choppy waters, the ferry turned around, returning him to Punta Arenas, which is across the Chilean border, which means he had to spend a night unexpectedly in uh, in Chilean territory. I've been to Punta Arenas. I've been to Tierra del Fuego, but never to the Chilean side, only to the Argentine side. I saw across. I saw the mountains across the way, and they looked lovely. Yeah, and they're, they're very big. I, I hope to someday go to the Chilean side of uh, southern Argentina. Uh, our friend Jim goes to a bar in Punta Arenas and orders a fan shop, which is a beloved drink there, half orange Fanta, half lager beer. <gasps> What do you think of a Fanta mixed drink? I bet you. So, you know, in Hungary, they drink white wine spritzers. Like all the farmers yeah. drink white wine and 7-Up, I think, or whatever. And I, you know, and I've, we've talked about red beer at the Fish Inn yeah, on the show. I remember. I think beer and orange Fanta is probably great. I mean, neither of us drink beer, so we'll never know. But... um but I bet you that tastes good, right? I mean, it would have to be like a light, sizzly beer, like a like an ale. I don't know how good it would taste in a stout or a porter. I guess it's their equivalent of a um, of an Arnold Palmer or something. <laughs> yeah. No, we all we all love drinking a Fanta, <laughs> and we all think a beer on a hot day is refreshing. What if you combined the refreshment power of both those things? Hmm. Mm. So, yeah, uh, Fan Shop is apparently a Fanta fanfic. And now the part of the show where we hear from Esowit, our adopted elephant. The most beloved member of the Omnibus family. What's going on with Esowit, that nut? This is a very exciting... scamp. This is a very exciting Esowit update. So uh, last month, or I don't know, in a recent addenda... You asked any listeners in Kenya to stop by and see Esowit in person. Okay. Tell me more about what happened next. A listener named John, as he heard that, already apparently had uh, a plan to visit the Sheldrake Wildlife Trust Elephant Sanctuary that same week. Like just a day or two after hearing your plea, he already had set up a visit to the Sheldrake Wildlife Trust. Is he Kenyan or living in Kenya or is he on a vacation? It is not clear. I could probably try to research him with social media, but maybe that would be creepy. Yeah, okay. Um, But he reports that the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust Elephant Sanctuary is a beautiful facility. Um, They open to the public for part of the day, and on that day they bring in about 25 elephants in in small groups, and you can watch the caretakers feeding them from giant 
bottles of milk. The elephants eat some leaves. The elephants play in the mud. So you get the full elephant observing experience. Aww. And John got to check out Essowit. No, really? Yes. He sent photos, in fact. I, I just forwarded them to you. Did he say, hey, I'd like to meet Essowit because I have a connection to him via my friends? I don't know if he volunteered to the crowd that he uh, was, was a pre-existing Essowit. fan of Essowit. Oh, what a friendly little fellow. He, he, but he has an in-person impression of Essowit, something you and I have not been able to get. On the day he was there, Essowit was more dignified than the other goofs and was mostly just kind of standing off to the side yeah. and was not up for playing. Possibly, he thinks, because Essowit has some sense that he's sponsored by such an eminent institution as ours. Perhaps. Yeah, maybe, you know, Essowit used to be such a, such a fun little fellow, always getting into scrapes, and now maybe Essowit is a little bit like... Do you know who I am? Yeah, does he know? Have they told him? Oh, what a cute That he's little, the big celebrity? Little S-O-S. Anyway, John wholeheartedly recommends the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, you know, not just for uh, a visit if you're ever in Kenya, but also for your support if you care about ecological causes. They, He says the elephants all seem to be very well cared for and, uh, and they're doing good work. Thank you for these firsthand photos of our little guy. I wonder, you know, he says all the elephants there are between one and three years old, which I assume means that they either are returned to the wild or sent to some other facility when they're older. And I wonder if that means our time would be limited to hang out with us with, that I need to get to Kenya in the next year or two. Well, maybe you need to get to Kenya if you want to hang out with him there. But maybe Essowit goes to work somewhere hauling logs, cab over Pete with a reefer on. Or we bring him here. What if, what if instead we, of a donkey, you get an elephant? What if we buy good reference to a show that will come out for a couple months? Good. <laughs> but yeah, like what if we bring Essowit to Seattle, except the zoo got in trouble for having elephants. All the local neighbors thought it was animal cruelty to keep elephants in Finney Ridge. So. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to keep hyenas in a cage that's exactly one millionth the size of their normal, <laughs> their normal run. But uh, but yeah yeah it's bad. Elephants have feelings. There's something about the inherent nobility of the elephant that makes people like you know they use that same enclosure now for rhinos and the neighbors hadn't said haven't said boo so. Yeah right because rhinos don't cry or they don't look like they're crying. They don't have a big graveyard. They don't they don't have famous memories. Um, Wait a minute, elephants el- have famous memories. Yeah, elephants don't forget, right? Oh, sure. Their memories are famous. Not that... Not that their memories of memories of famous things? Yeah, I was going to say, like, wh- how do we know what their memories are that any of them are famous? <laughs> yeah, what's the, what would you say is the most famous memory an elephant has? Like, <laughs> like watching the moon landing oh, or... Uh, <laughs> I really want to know now. John, thank you for sending those photos of Essowit. We will put these on the um, Patreon feed with your permission so that... Uh, other donors can enjoy them. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 29. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.